Ladies and gentlemen, the curve has inverted again. Now you may have heard of this in the business press and financial media over the last few years, that when a curve inverts, it's not necessarily good news. In fact, it's bad news. And usually they're referring to the US Treasury bond market. If that curve inverts, it augurs a recession. But that's not what we're gonna be talking about. And importantly, one of the key points I wanna make during this whole presentation is that you don't hear about this other curve that we're gonna talk about in your financial press, in your business media. Probably the only time you've ever heard anyone discussing this curve being inverted is on this show, which I presume is why you're listening to the show. Jeff Snyder, I was just gonna say, Jeff, welcome to the show, but I have to introduce you. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we're gonna talk about which curve? We're gonna talk about the Eurodollar futures curve, which is amongst my favorite. And the reason it's amongst my favorite is because it has so much information, so much, so much of a really good track record in telling you a lot about what's really going on inside the monetary system, inside the real economy in real time. It's data that we have. It's an indication that we have that, that really gives you a, a, some keen insight into places that you can't otherwise normally you know, directly observe, which is really what we're trying to do here. So in March of 2019 and August of 2019, the U.S. Treasury curve inverted, and we heard about it. And we heard that it probably didn't matter this time because X, Y, and Z were different, and therefore likely we're not going to have a recession because globally synchronized growth and it's booming and everything like that. We never heard about what happened in June of 2018. But before we go to June 2018, Jeff, we... <laughs> It's Eurodollar University. So we always talk about the Eurodollar, but let's introduce it because there's the uppercase Eurodollar market, and then there's the lowercase Eurodollar, which we refer to as the shadow money, the unknown, the private banking system creating money out of thin air. But Eurodollar futures just introduce it for us. What does it represent? And then take us to June 2018. Well, these are derivative contracts that give you the entitlement to a one million dollar euro dollar deposit at whatever time you know whatever contract maturity date uh, you specify and really it's a bet on three month libor because the price of the euro dollar futures uh, contract is indexed to three months libor at that future date so really you're betting on this offshore us dollar money rate sometime in the future so the market tells us about what the you know, vast majority of banks and financial participants and all these sophisticated and large scale investors are what they're thinking about and specifically in terms of three months LIBOR and all of the factors that go into determining what three months LIBOR will be at various points across the future. That's why this is such a such a dynamic marketplace, but also an important and very good indication of what's really going on, what people are really thinking about in the in terms of you know the system itself. And you're right, there's a distinction here. The, the euro dollar futures are, are specifically related to LIBOR and euro dollar deposits, you know, fictional euro dollar deposits, because these are cash settled contracts. And so it's a subset of the wider, smaller E or smaller case E euro dollar system that we talk about. So, it, you know, it is as important as this euro dollar futures curve and the contracts are it's still only one piece of the puzzle. It's a very good key piece of the puzzle, but it's only one piece and you need to look every, we need to look elsewhere for confirmation. So if we see something happening in Eurodollar futures, we think, okay, 
that's got our attention. Now let's see if we can see other things going on in other places that, that, that give us a consistent, coherent picture of the entire small e euro dollar system of what's really going on there. So we can start with euro dollar futures and that curve and then look elsewhere to, to get a sense of, is this really happening? Is this really going on? Is this something we should be concerned about or is it just you know a quirk or a technicality? And so when we say inversion, what we're saying for the audience that may not know is that future rates, the expected path of future rates will be lower than the near-term contracts. And the near-term contracts are going to be wherever they are because they're, uh, they're a money-like equivalent, a competitor to what the Federal Reserve is doing. So the Federal Reserve has some control, reasonable control over short-term interest rates. And if the Federal Reserve is setting the reverse repo rate or the federal funds rate or God knows what they're setting these days, at a certain level, you would think your dollar future should be around that area. But then when they invert that longer term outlook is saying, aha, aha, we expect that short term interest rates will be lower at point X because probably the Fed is going to be lowering rates. Why would the Fed be lowering rates? At that's June the key. That's it right there. It's all of the factors that go into why would rates be where they are at some point in the future. And it starts with the idea of monetary policy. And you're right. The Federal Reserve has all sorts of monetary alternatives like the reverse repo and IOER that it uses to influence money rates around the world. But remember, this is the future. It's not what the Federal Reserve was doing today. It's what the Federal Reserve might be doing a year from now or two years from now. And what Jay Powell thinks he's going to be doing a year from now or two years from now may not end up what, what, end up, what, what ends up happening in the real world, in the real marketplace. And usually the euro dollar futures market has been ahead of the curve, ahead of Jay Powell and those like him. You can go all the way back to 2006 when euro dollar futures inverted saying to Ben Bernanke, hey, you've got some serious trouble brewing while he was talking about subprime being contained. So euro dollar futures isn't strictly about monetary policy. It's about all of the economic, financial and money factors that combine that are going to determine what the Fed is going to do in the future, even if the Fed doesn't know it's going to do it today because usually the Fed and economists and their models are way, way behind the times and are often very blind to all of these developments, as they were in 2018. Going back to June of 2018, remember, it was, it was ridiculous, preposterous to think that the Fed would be cutting rates at that time because at the, it, back then everybody was convinced, as now, inflation, 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 it's coming. The Fed's, gonna, the Fed's gonna be not just hiking rates, it's gonna be hiking rates according to an accelerated schedule. That's what everybody believed, the hawkishness of the middle of 2018. And here comes this, this Eurodollar futures inversion in June, June 13th of 20, I mean, the middle of 2018, in the midst of all this inflation hysteria, the curve's got a little bit of an inversion kink around the 2020-2021 contracts, which were just outside the two-year window. <laughs> Dead on right. Which said, basically, wait a minute here. You guys are all talking about rate hikes and inflation. We're seeing some bad stuff develop that we're now going to hedge as lower, lower interest rates, lower three-month LIBOR rates in the future. Now, the, the initial inversion wasn't much, just a couple of basis points. But when you see something like that happen, especially during a time period like that, it should not have been there. If anything, the curve should have been steepening 
with the with the market saying yes, Jay Powell is going to continue to hike rates to the foreseeable future. The fact that the curve first flattened before June of 2018 was already a warning, and then when it inverted, what that said was. This is serious stuff. Things are going wrong in the monetary system, in the real economy. at such a pace and in such a way that we expect the Fed to have to turn around. There is a growing chance the Fed is going to have to cut rates in the future rather than raise them. And of course, again, June of 2018, everybody, the, the idea that this was going to happen was laughable because nobody was thinking that way. And yet here you had this, this huge, robust, liquid, sophisticated marketplace saying there's something really wrong here. And to your earlier point about multiple independent points of view confirming, it wasn't as if the Eurodollar futures curve just had a palpitation and a fit. There were things happening. In February of 2018, we had Jerome Powell join the hawk, right? But guess what? They completely ignore that because they were looking at the liquidations of stock markets in the United States and China in January. The dollar started rising in April. Uh, we had emerging market currencies starting to plunge. We had, I believe, Argentina uh, losing the grip on their recovery. Uh, May 29th, a buying panic in U.S. Treasuries and German bonds. So it wasn't in isolation. We had a problem, and it proved right by the end of the year. And by end of the day, the uh, Jerome Powell and the Hawks had turned to doves. That, right. I mean, Emil, that's how these things go, right? It's a series of escalating warnings that get worse and worse and worse until some point you say, okay, something's going to really break here. And that was what the Eurodollar futures inversion was in June of 2018. That was the point where, as you just, you know, you just went through a litany of warnings that these escalating warnings throughout the early part of 2018 were saying things are going wrong, things are going wrong. And then when that curve inverted, it was the market saying, okay, this might have been the point of no return. We've, we've passed some threshold where these warnings are no longer warnings. They're just bad things that are happening and they're getting worse. And of course, you know, the way that 2018 ended into 2019 was, yeah, things got a lot worse pretty quickly. And so, you know, the, the euro dollar futures, back to our original point, it's one of those things that when you see something like a cork in the curve like that, you, you really need to pay attention to it because it's one of those primary, very deep, deep seated uh, developments. And, you know, it's, 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 it's the people inside the marketplace telling you what's going on in places you can't otherwise see. You really got to pay attention to it. All those things I listed were monetary shadows. That's where they were going wrong in the monetary shadows. And I hope audience, that's why you're listening and watching this show. They weren't going wrong in the media narrative. They, everything was going great there. Uh, Jeff, speaking of the media, in December 2020, I remember just a litany, as the word you used a second ago, an avalanche of news stories that the euro dollar curve inverted again, and that maybe people should Take a moment to consider what this deep, maybe the deepest market in the world. I've often heard that this is the deepest market in the world, the biggest one. So, Jeff, do you remember that that was just on Bloomberg and CNBC constantly, the euro dollar inversion in December 2020? Yeah, except the inversion was inverted. It was an inverted inversion. It was the, 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 the quirk was this time the curve was the December 2020 contract was a bit higher priced than the or lower price, excuse me, than the 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 2021 contracts up to March. March is the most liquid. The quarter the quarters are the most liquid. So what that said was that the market was sort of hedging and preparing for a LIBOR spike, a jump in LIBOR prices 
a short run kind of a thing, sort of a year-end bottleneck or quirk that requires some serious hedging component to it for reasons most people couldn't explain. And the reason they couldn't explain was because Jay Powell supposedly flooded the world with digital dollars to the point that we have a problem of, at least in the mainstream narrative, too much money floating around. But yet, if we have too much money flowing around, why was the euro dollar futures curve inverted inverted, which was, you know, why was this little quirk or kink in the curves showing up in December of 2020? That was the market saying there might be trillions in bank reserves, but we don't trust them when the when the when it, when the going gets tough at the end of the year, it, we might have to prepare for a, 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 a unknowable LIBOR spike or some kind of illiquidity related to the year-end bottleneck. Ladies and gentlemen, I was offering Jeff a pinata to swing at violently. I, I hope you understood when I was saying the media that it was in the news. It wasn't in the news. None of that was in the news. But Jeff chose to instead educate you instead of beating a dead horse, even if it was a pinata. Jeff, I'm going to bring up a graph that shows something similar for December 2021. How many inversions are we looking at now? Inversion, inversion? Inversion? Inverted, inverted, inverted inversions. I don't know what we want to call it. Let's call it a kink in the curve, right? And it's, yeah, now that December year end sort of fear has repeated. Mm -mm. And it's been there almost all year. Uh, and almost every curve so far this year, you see that little bit of a bump. It's just a couple basis points, and it's not a whole lot. It's not the market saying we're scared to death of. What, what might happen at the year end, but it's 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 enough that it, it gets your attention because, as I said before, it should not be there, and it definitely should not be there if you believe bank reserves are money, and the Federal Reserve has flooded the world with even more bank reserves and money this year than last year, and yet here's the curve saying, you know, we got to hedge against a possible year end problem for the second year running. It's the market telling you that this the idea of bank reserves being effective money and therefore the, the world uh, consistent with too much money just isn't true. Again, it's not the end of it's not the market saying that the, everything's going to crash by year end. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a technical point of illiquidity, calendar quirk that everybody knows about and yet here we are here we are with the curve distorting itself in such a way that it shows you that there's some very real concern about what could happen around this year end bottleneck. When I opened the show, I, I was very dramatic. But you, in your article, which was posted on the 7th of July at Alhambra Partners, and the title of that is Eurodollar Curve Quirk Trivia, but not trivial to anti-inflation. In your article, Jeff, you make that point. You say, at the current date, this thing is not the same class as the June inversion had been that it's an oddity it's a fly in the soup right now but but and and it is yeah but also you know if we take a broader look at the euro dollar curve which you do in a nice graph that i'm going to pull up here besides the technicality i think it shows what we've been saying throughout this year is that this reflation i hope it gets going soon that's what I want to say. And that's what the euro dollar team is also looking at and saying, when when are we going to have the reflation start again? Look at this, Jeff. What what am I showing here? Those are the euro dollar futures curves at various points over the last over the history of the 21st century. And you can see how 
how lower and lower and lower and flatter and flatter and flatter it got so that we get to 2021 and we look at that curve and we're saying this is the curve that everybody was saying was supposed to be hugely inflationary, that inflation is coming, the Fed's going to be pushed off of its zero interest rate policy. No, not even close. As you pointed out, Emil, it barely qualifies as reflation. I, I, I struggle to classify what happened this year at all as reflation, and this is one re key reason why. And I think a key reason why these curves, including the, the, the Treasury yield curve, have been so low and flat and stuck in such a, a position is that quirk in the curve. That there's What that says is, yes, okay, this is not like June of 2018 where that inversion meant something big had taken place or something big had changed. But that quirk in the curve this year and last year is is essentially skepticism or distrust about the monetary situation in the global system. And that kind of a distrust says you're not going to get inflation. Chances are something's going to go wrong and we're going to go back into a dollar shortage situation long before we ever get there. And that's really what the message of the curve is this year and where the prices have changed over the last couple of months as well as growing distrust that we're going to make it into inflation because something is going to go wrong, regardless of the trillions of bank reserves, those things don't matter. Something's gonna go wrong in the system to trip everything up again before it really gets going. And that's really our point here with looking at the curve is, yeah, this isn't a big deal, but it is. It's a big deal in the sense that the market does not trust that Jay Powell's got, this, got his finger on the pulse of what's really going on in the system and that something could really go wrong, no matter how many trillions of bank reserves there are, before we ever really get a step into even reflation, let alone, I mean, forget inflation, we, we still need to get into reflation first. You end your article with this image from David Parkinson. That was from our second episode, Jeff, ages ago, decades ago. Noah, the greatest liquidity event since Noah. Jay Powell on the ark, looking to the heavens. And don't forget, he, he went on 60 Minutes in May of 2020 and said, yes, I flooded the world with digital dollar. He said that. He lied through his teeth and said that. So that's he was obviously trying to get people to believe that narrative, the idea that the Fed has printed money, not just money, but a flood of it. And that's just the market is saying, well, there's a flood of bank reserves, but those aren't the same thing. Is there anything that we need to tell the audience before we move on to our next article, Jeff? Anything that we didn't cover in here? No, I think it's it really our major point is look, this is not a it's right now it's not a you know, it's it's a, it's one of those oddities that gets your attention and starts to ask you know, get you to ask the right questions about are we really in a situation where there's too much money around the world because the curve is starting to say, no, it, there's more risk of the opposite which is where you, you then start to look at other places and say, yeah, there's a lot of agreement out there in the marketplace, not in the media, but in the marketplace that inflation has got zero chance here. The market is more positioned to things going wrong than going right. For in part two of this episode, we're going to look at the world's fourth largest economy, the economic engine of Europe, Germany, and see what's happening there. And because it's such a big export power, what that's telling us about the rest of the world. But we're going to do so by starting out in Japan first. The pinnacle of American cinema was Animal House, in your humble host's opinion. And in that moment, John Blutarski unified two nations in a speech that went down in history. And those two nations were Germany 
and Japan. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Germany via Japan. It's confusing, Jeff, but is it going to be a good show, Jeff? I hope so. <laughs> I hope it, you know, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> Let us know in the comments section, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, the article we're going to be discussing is bond reversal in Japan, but pay attention to it in Germany. I should have just read that. And it was posted on the 8th of July at Alhambra Investments. And Jeff, we're going to talk about yield curve control first in Japan. And that will then segue to the sovereign bonds, the buns and the, I don't, can you say what the short term German? The Schatzes? Yeah, I don't want to say it because I'm worried, about, I'm worried about my pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, okay, yield curve control, why is that important? Japan and the JGBs, tell us. Well, it's not important. That's what's oh. important about it is that yield curve control is a laughable idea, but yet it comes up every so often because we're told that everything's going right. Central banks are printing money, inflation's coming, all these other things. And if that's the case, then you would expect bond yields to rise because bond yields are made up of growth and inflation expectations. Going back to Irving Fisher over a century ago, that much has been proven true time and time again. So if these QEs and money printing and fiscal inter in injections are all successful, we would expect bond yields to rise. We would want them to rise because that would be the marketplace, the real economy in, the real, in, the, in real time telling us, yes, this stuff is actually working. It's working so well, we don't want to own safe liquid instruments. We want to own risky stuff. And that's, you know, so we have these reflationary sell-offs where the bond market says, maybe this stuff is working. This time, maybe there's a small chance we're going to get some inflation and growth. But the authorities don't believe that's a good no. sign. They believe that if interest rates are rising, A, that'll choke off the recovery because now you have to pay more to borrow money to invest in the real economy, or B, the government can't afford to pay more on you know interest on their debt. So, in comes the yield curve control. Uh, but tell me if you know. I don't think you you like either of those excuses reasons. No, but you're exactly right. The mainstream conventional theory is that rising interest rates are a huge problem. Hmm. Therefore. What the Federal Reserve or any central bank, Bank of Japan, ECB, whoever it might be, what their job is during a recovery is to make sure interest rates don't interrupt the good times before they get good enough that we reach recovery. And that's what essentially yield curve control is in theory. And of course, if the theory is completely bonkers because rising interest rates are exactly what we want to see. And if you're thinking rising interest rates are choking off the recovery, then the recovery is not strong enough to begin with because uh, if the recovery is a true recovery, it can more than handle rising interest rates. In fact, it would welcome rising interest rates as well as rising rates of return, which throughout entire you know, economic history, those two things have always corresponded. Rising interest rates, rising opportunities, rising rates of return. Those are all good things, not bad things. But central banking and current economic theory has everything backwards. Now I'm going to pull up a chart from your article that shows that yield curve control worked. If you look at you just are? the JGB, <laughs> <Now I'm confused. laughs> well, I'm trying to be the minority report, the devil's advocate, the, the, devil's the, advocate the, here, right? yes. the dissenting opinion. So Jeff, 
Uh, okay, you've got a couple of bands here. Well, you you can explain it. Go ahead. What what yeah, are we looking bank, at? The Bank of Japan, which is where most of the stuff starts its life, because they're the mm. ones who have to experiment because they're further down the curve, the horrible deflationary curve than the rest of the world. So we're all we're all just following what Japan does because central bankers have no other ideas. They came up with yield curve control all, all the way back in September of 2016 because they were convinced globally synchronized growth was going to do the trick. And therefore, that was going to lead to higher interest rates in Japan, even though interest rates have been sinking for years and years and years. Uh, the idea is, again, very simple. They were going to target the 10-year JGB and say, we're going to target a yield of zero, but we're going to allow it to trade within a, a, a band or a range plus or minus 10 basis points. So as far as uh, the Bank of Japan was concerned, if the 10-year JGB got up to 10 basis points, they wouldn't do anything. But if it stepped over to 11, although it did on a couple occasions, they were supposed to step into the market, buy the bonds, and push the yields back down, which is already a stupid theory because, as we've seen and we talked about last time on the show, in practice, yields usually go the opposite way of bond buying. So it's not at all – there's no direct correlation or, or specific correlation between – central bank bond buying and the way yields actually behave. And so a lot of this is just more smoke and mirrors, the illusion of trying to maintain control by saying, oh, if we target a specific range and the, and the, the, uh, the bond market happens to stay within that range, that must be because we targeted the specific range rather than the market saying, well, no, things aren't really that good. What would you say to uh, people that would say, well, look at that pink section there. It does look like, yeah, it just kept bouncing up off against that ceiling. What I would say is that why did it bounce lower, though? <laughs> because time and time again, it, the, you know, the yield dropped back down towards zero. And remember, this was 2017, globally synchronized growth. This is supposed to be the, the, uh, the recovery of all recoveries. Finally, you know, getting past the post-crisis lethargy. And here the JGB market kept saying, well, maybe, no. Maybe, nope, maybe, I mean, it never really got going. And it wasn't because the Bank of Japan promised to, to cap rates at 10 basis points or cap the 10-year yield at 10 basis points. It was because the market kept saying, well, maybe things are going well, and then deciding, no, they really weren't. And, of course, then you get to 2018 and 2019, the end of 2018 and into 2019, and you see, obviously, there was no need for yield curve control because yields plunged all over again as the globally synchronized growth fantasy faded away into what became a globally synchronized downturn, if not recession. The best example, I think, that would confirm what you're saying is the February 26th peak that you've identified here. If we look at just this chart, then you could say, yeah, okay, the market comes up to the to the line drawn in the sand, to the pale, and it dares not cross it because it respects the Bank of Japan. But Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Partners, guess what? The JGBs were not the only ones that did an about face in late February and March, early March, mid-March. I've got a list here. The United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States, Japan, and Singapore all turned around and headed south at the exact same time. So it wasn't yeah, so was the that market. The, was that the entire global bond market respecting the Bank of Japan? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Exactly. No, no. And it's, it, 
again, the theory is ridiculous to begin with. And then to think that in practice, here we are, February 26th, which shows up, as we've talked about since February 24th, <laughs> 24, 25, and 26, it shows up all across the world. So this has nothing to do whatsoever with yield curve control yet again. And so we need to step back and say, well, what was it that, that, that what was actually pushing yields up and what would it have been then that, that changed everything and you know uh, everything back down again, yields starting to fall all over again, which now we're four and a half months since this happened. So this is, this is sort of a serious setback. But you know what, Jeff? I didn't mention some countries. In fact, I didn't mention three of the top six sovereign bond markets because they didn't head down in March. They started to head down in May and June. And here's a list of them. Switzerland, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, France, Italy, and Germany. Yeah, all the Europeans, right? Which Why? makes sense in a, in a, in a, in, in a certain respect because... The, the European economy, Germany in particular, was hindered. It was late to the reflation. It was it was late to the reopening, because the uh, Europeans were stuck under a second or third third wave of lockdowns, however you want to number them. And so, you know, the German the German economy, the European economy, kind of got a later boost than everybody else. And so, for a time there, you know, there was that response to February 26th. But then, when you get into April and into the first part of May. You know, the European markets sold off, got, got really reflationary in certain, in, certain, uh, in certain parts of it, including the German market. And so I've pulled up another chart here. And with the, oh God, I hope I get this right, the Schatzes, they did peak in the 26th. And they never really, they've gone sideways ever since. While the long term, the buns kept rising, signaling reflation until May when some economic data we've recently learned about went south and belly up. But Jeff, before I tell you, before I handed the microphone back over to you, I'm going to confide in you and tell you why I'm having a hard time saying shots is because when I was a, a young man, I traveled to Germany with mother and we went to go see some friends. And as kids who speak foreign languages are wont to do, this child told me a bad word and said, oh yeah, that means butterfly or cotton candy, whatever. And so what did I do, Jeff? An innocent young man. I went onto the bed that we were staying at and I was jumping up and down and saying, <laughs> shysta, 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 at these people's house, right? You, at our friend's for house, life, right? <laughs> and it was in Munich. This was during the time of the Cold War. Am I going to be arrested? And I remember... Uh, the person that we were staying with come in and then mother comes in and, uh, and there's just this pale look on their face and then they grab the drink. And uh, only years later did I realize that I was yelling S, 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 S at the top. So of course I have a hard time saying shots. I'm scared as to whether I'm really saying something appropriate. Well, you're safe saying shots. I always have a problem whether or not to put an E in there. Is it S H? You know, it's, it, it's, it's, I have problems with the spelling, but as far as the pronunciation in the, in the, in the definition of the term, you're, in, you're on safe ground with the shots. German factory orders, May. What happened? What did we learn? Yeah, coincidence, right? The bond market takes a tumble in May, and then a couple months later, the German uh, German statistical agency, the Status, comes out and says, 
hey, something went something reversed or went wrong in, in the factory sector in May. Again, real-time data. The, the markets, the bond markets, you know, we talked about euro dollar futures in our previous episode. These are mark the markets are telling us what's going on in the real economy, in the real in the real um, marketplace as things are happening. And um, the idea that we need to uh, discount bond yields being low because of QE, for example, is just it, it's ridiculous because there's so much good information about the hidden places we can't directly observe in these types of things. And here's another really good example. You see Germany and uh, European bonds that were in reflation almost alone across the rest of the world. And then it, in late May, suddenly they, they jump right out of reflation and you have to ask yourself what's going on here. Now here we, we're finally getting into the data of what's going on here. Well, we're going to talk about it, that it's not just Germany, but I couldn't help myself, Jeff, and I got out my <laughs> crayons and I drew a chart with the data for German factory orders, new orders in manufacturing. This goes all the way back to the 50s, Jeff, it includes the miracle, the growth miracle. And uh, so the most recent data, as you point out, was 3.7% lower month over month. Yeah, not annual, monthly drop. It was a huge drop in factory orders in the month of May. That's a bottom decile result. For 69 years, you line up all the months, you will find that result, 3.7%, in the bottom 10% of all experience. And Jeff, I drew over here, I don't know if, I drew a few trend lines. Now, one, one of the trend lines is basically from 1952 to 2007. And that includes, you know, everything, right? The growth miracle, the, the terrible difficulties of reunification, but then the uptrend that Germany got during the Euro. And, and that's that red dotted line. And you can see how far off new factory orders are from that trend. But I know what people will say, well, you can't include the growth miracle. That's, you know, that's post-World War II. That's not going to happen again. So I didn't include it. I went from 1971, post-miracle, and included the bad period, the reunification, but also the good period, the right. Euro, uh, the post-1999 period. And again, that gold dash line, you can see how far off we are you know the only the only trend that germany is on is if you ex exclude all the good stuff so if you exclude the growth miracle and you exclude the introduction of the euro then germany's on trend which isn't that disappointing jeff i mean that doesn't that be on disappointing that's, i mean that's that's, a, that's, that's not, a concern yeah it's I know people say, well, you can't include the euro, that was idiosyncratic. You can't include the growth miracle, that was a one-off. So you're taking out all the good stuff, and what do you leave? You just leave the re reunification misery, the recessions, and of course, and that's the trend they're on? No. This, okay, I'm handing it over to you. Uh, the new, so big, big deal, Jeff. So Germany's struggling, right? That doesn't affect all of us. Well, that's, I think that's part of the point, too, is that the German factory sector, manufacturing, not just in Germany, but around the rest of the world, has been the lone bright spot over the last you know, six or seven months of reopening and recovery or whatever the hell this is that's going on right now. The goods economy, that's the one that's been, that's the one that's been actually somewhat robust compared to everything else. And so it was kind of shocking, as you said, you know, bottom decile result from 
what has been, you know, the German factory sector, which has been the biggest beneficiary of this artificial goods boom. And that's really the point here. If we start to see the German factory sector reverse itself, if we're going into, you know, if this is more than just a one month trend in May and it continues as German bond yields and global bond yields uh, all across the world are suggesting, what that indicates is that, you know, this really was an artificial transitory period where we had a whole bunch of good things happen and then what happens after those that start to recede and wear off. And if the German factory orders data is indicative of that, that kind of a pattern, which it seems to be, it's consistent with the idea of temporary or dare I say transitory factors starting to recede, what does the economy look like after they've completely gone? And it really, when you look at the detail of the factory orders in Germany, it wasn't simply that Germany stumbled. In fact, German factory orders internally or domestically were still robust and strong. It was, it was orders for German factory goods from outside of Germany. Bingo. I believe against from the rest of the eurozone, they were down like one point three percent. Yes, which I mean that's not that bad, and that's that's but that's still it's the wrong direction. But it was orders from the rest of the world, which were down more than nine percent in a single month. Nine point two percent. Yeah, which plays into this idea that the rest of the world had been artificially temporarily boosted by a whole combination of good things. And now we're starting to see those things recede and recede maybe a little bit too too quickly. To start to go in the wrong direction at 9% to German factory orders is, is a pretty stark result. And that plays into the fears that not just a growth slowdown, because it's not really a growth slowdown, it's that, yes, all the, all the stuff that wasn't really actually good outside the goods economy across the world, what happens if the goods economy starts to stumble and fall back downward? We're left with... Not a growth slowdown, but a lack of growth entirely from the from the last year for, going forward. So that data was released on the 6th of July. The following day, industrial production out of Germany was released. And again, I got a hold of some markers and I drew a graph, Jeff. And here it is. And why did I do this? Because I like to draw? No. Because what I wanted to show... We're looking at industrial production, that's the red line, and then down below is the year over year or month over month change. The key, what we want, what I want everyone to see here is that it appears we've recovered from the COVID, the corona shock. But guess what we've recovered into? We've recovered right back into that downtrend that was in place since 2018. Jeff, you could almost draw a line you just kind of fill in the corona part. It's as if it didn't happen and we're right back on trend. Industrial production was down month over month in, what month was it? May. May, yeah. And now, and you know, this data goes back to 1991 and you can see that when Germany hits some trouble, it takes four to eight years, depending on what the, the, the issue was, for them to re- cover and reachieve that previous high and Jeff it doesn't look like the current downtrend is over we're back into the the deglobalization downtrend and that's you know that's what we were just saying right once we get past this artificial boost into the manufacturing and goods where do we go from there well where we go from there it looks like more and more it looks like as you just said 
we're right back where we were before, mm. which is which was not a good place to be in any parts of the of the global economy, let alone in some places like Germany. Industrial production too is more comprehensive than just manufacturing or factory orders. So what we're looking at is that yeah, again the factory sector, manufacturing specifically consumer goods, has been the lone bright spot, and now there's signs and signals and indications that that's starting to fall off and maybe fall off really quickly leaving us with an economy that looks way, way too much like pre-COVID than it should have been. And that does nothing to address the huge hole in the global economy from 2020. We haven't had a rebound from it yet, which is why I say, are we, or, you know, why I ask, well, are we really in reflation at all? Because we just kind of, we had a big, big black, you know, big hole or black spot in the economy last year. And then we just went right back to where we were before. And that's not a good situation. It's certainly not an inflationary situation by any stretch of the imagination. So that, you know, again, consistent picture of data with market behavior and market results and curves and all the things that we talk about, which suggests, again, as I've been saying all along, inflation is the outlier. It is an extreme outlier. There's almost no chance of it to happen. Jeff, the... The devil's advocate, the people watching the show right now would say, A, oh, you guys are just a bunch of perma bears that need haircuts. And, but you're some sort of extinct perma bear because you're, you're in the past, man. You're talking about May factory orders and May industrial production. What about something forward looking like the ZEW survey or the PMI numbers? I was prepared, Jeff. That was a setup. I've actually got another chart. Another drawing. Here it is. The ZEW survey, which is of financiers in Germany. I guess it's a little bit of a busy chart, Jeff. Forgive me. But the bottom shows the whether or not the future is seen as more optimistic relative to the present. Because the lines above, they represent current conditions. That's the solid gold line. And then the dotted line represents sentiment going forward. So if sentiment is higher, that means, you know, you're more optimistic about the future than the present. But that's not the key takeaway here. So the zoo survey just came out this week. And what did it show? Well, it showed that it's still very elevated. In fact, it's in the top quintile of all results since 1991. So that's good news, right? Top quintile, optimism about the next six months. But the month over month change was in the bottom decile. So it dropped a lot from extreme highs to reasonably pretty darn high, but it was still a rapid, rapid decrease. Now, Jeff, how do we balance this against the PMIs in manufacturing and services, which also came out this week and last week? The PMI manufacturing did go up to 65. That's pretty good. And services to 57. Pretty good but not super considering all the stimulus and all that sort of stuff, but still positive. They're both positive. So what are we to take away from these more forward-looking indicators? Well, you'll remember PMIs, especially IHS market, they're made up of a whole bunch of different subcomponents, not just activity or orders or things like that. There's also prices and, and uh, delivery supplier, supplier delivery times and things, you know, that are sort of outside the scope of what we're looking at and outside of, of what we're trying to capture here. And obviously, prices remain on the upswing, especially back in May and, and maybe not so much June. But if you look at some of those components, 
you know, that's going to explain some of the difference there. Prices are rising and things like that. Supplier delivery times are being influenced to the point or they're influencing the headline changes so that the uh, headlines continue to go up. Whereas if you look at just orders or just factory turnover, as we did just previously, it may be that things are already starting to, to soften, maybe roll over, maybe do something worse, especially if we consider what the German bond yields or actually global bond yields have done since the middle of May, which has been it's been over the last month or so to really sink rapidly. You have to wonder what's really going on. What's the data going to look like in a couple of months when we start to get the, some of these things, some of these indications for what's going on right now. And I think that it, more than likely it's going to match what we're seeing in the global bond market. Right. That's the ultimate forward looking indicator. Absolutely. Jeff, I'm going to ask you if there's anything that we didn't cover before we move on to part three of this episode. But before I do, I would just like to let you know that Germany is the fourth biggest economy and it is our fifth most popular country of this show. So people that listen to this show, United States, number one, then Canada, the UK is three, Australia four, and Germany, number five. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I, I, you know, like we, I always pay attention to German bonds, the market, uh, and especially the German economy because... The German economy in particular can tell you a lot about the global economy. I've yeah. always said it's a bellwether, it's a proxy, along with the Japanese economy, for how the rest of the global economy might be faring. And if you go back to 2018, like we like, like we, we do quite a bit, it was Germany in particular, but along with Japan, that said right from the start of 2018, things are going the wrong way. And those series of escalating warnings culminating in the euro dollar futures inversion, which, you know, completely changed the way the, the global economy moved from that point forward. A couple other points regarding our ratings. Jeff, you need to write more about New Zealand. They're all the way down in eighth. It's an English-speaking nation. No offense to Germany, Sweden, and Singapore, but I would think it should be all one, two, top three, four, five. Should be the five eyes, five eyes nation. And then, Jeff, I don't know what we're doing wrong. Japan, the third largest economy in the world, 21st in our national league table and that's only because i have a friend there who's in my fantasy football league that's the only reason they're 21st so i don't know Maybe we got to do better we, we need to speak a little more highly of the japanese and uh, uh less yeah. less critical of their ability to tolerate 30 years of incompetence from the bank of japan maybe maybe we need to be more more uh, positive about something like that i can't wait to i go don't know how you spin that positively though <laughs> Other than to say, hey, look, we're all in the same boat because we're just doing what the Japanese do, and we're 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 coming up with the same exact results as the Japanese have anyway. So, you know, there's really no difference. The Japanese people have put up with it just a little bit longer than we have. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what would you rather hear and discuss than PMIs and the outlook for various economies? I don't know. But I don't think there's many other things. And that's what we're going to discuss in part three. So don't go anywhere. When it comes to forward-looking indicators, Jeff and I often discuss what's happening in the money markets, in the shadows. And well, because that often leads real economic activity, commodity markets, capital markets. But I would think if we were to pick one item from the real economy that's forward-looking or is most popular 
and perhaps best, most representative. Jeff, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think it would be the purchasing manager indices. And that's what we're going to discuss with Jeff Snyder, head of global research right now. We're going to discuss what's happening in the United States, in China, and I'm going to give a world overview as well. Jeff, part three of our show, ISM's nasty little surprise isn't actually a surprise. That's the title of your July 6th piece where you talk about ISM, IHS, PMIs. Yeah, there was a nasty little surprise that wasn't really that much of a surprise because <laughs> last week or the week before the, before that, that uh, ISM data came out, we had the payroll reports. And the mm -hmm. payroll reports for the month of June were at the, the headline establishment survey seemed like everything was really good because it had bumped up into a big number uh, in the private side. I mean, it was, it, was, it was elevated a bit by government hiring or lack of government layoffs because seasonally adjusting and things like that. But still, it was a re really big number that seemed consistent with an economy moving along and the labor market moving along really well. But the household survey, which is sort of the bastard twin of these, the uh, current employment st uh, statistic numbers, the, the CPS or the household survey showed an, uh, actually a decline Hmm. in the month of June. Now, the household survey it isn't adjusted as much as the as establishment survey, and it is known to be quite volatile, but still, it has been moving low over the last couple of months to the point where in June, it's the, 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 you know, the households that were surveyed, which is some, eight, or I think it's 40 or 50,000 households that get surveyed, the, the, the tabulated results from that survey said, you know, we're starting to see maybe a softening of employment to the point where there's maybe a decline, maybe just a low number of growth in the month of June, which was the exact opposite of what's going on in the establishment survey. I suppose I pulled this graph up too early. Tell us a little bit. No, first. That's, I mean, what you're describing is we're getting, earlier we were talking about multiple independent points of view and taking one isolated piece of evidence and see if it matches up with, with others. And, uh, that's what we're going to do. But first, let's talk about the PMIs. There's the PMI that we all hear about, the headline PMI number. I know I eagerly await it uh, in the mornings when they're, when they're released. I've got a lot of money writing on it, a lot of bets. And But guess what, Jeff? There's like five, sometimes six, I, I don't remember, underlying components, prices, employment, what else? New orders. I don't remember all of them. What are and that's what we're just we're going to discuss one of them. Yeah, and it, it's um, there used to be just one PMI too. It was the ISM's mm. manufacturing survey, which was goes back into the I believe in the nineteen sixties, which was really the only the, the the granddaddy of all these PMIs. And then along came market and IHS market, which is competing with them. And now there's you know not just manufacturing. Of course, we have uh, the services component of the economy. So now there's an ISM manufacturing. ISM services, there's an IHS manufacturing, IHS non-manufacturing, and all these other things. And, and of course, they got together, and now they're putting together composite PMIs. So that we have almost, you know, it, it can be at certain months an overload of information. And sometimes it's tough to parse, parse what's really going on with all of, this num all of these numbers and indexes and things. And so you, of course, have, I was going to say nothing better than do, to do. But that's not fair. That's not fair, Jeff. No, but it's true. How do I say that you have the time, you find the time to parse that information and delve down into the employment PMI? Well, and what would know, that be? That would be, 
I'm sorry, Jeff, just very quickly, people may not know. So it's a survey. You call up somebody and you say, what do you think about the future with respect to prices, orders, et cetera, et cetera, and employment? And they say more, less, or about the same. Is that right? Yeah, it's a question. What they're questioning on are these various individual pieces, you know, employment. Are you hiring? Are you cutting workers or about the same? Are those, those That's really the questions that they're asked. Hmm. And they put together a... a a statistical number that where 50 is the dividing line, which between more people saying things are growing, therefore the PMI is going to be above 50 or the component's going to be above 50 with, uh, versus if more people are saying they're cutting back or things are falling, then you would expect that to be below 50. Okay. And then for the employment section, that's the nasty little surprise because was the headline number positive, Jeff? Well, the headline number for services actually declined on both IHS market as well as ISM. And so it was, yeah, it wasn't, a, I mean, the number is still very high, like a lot of the PMIs are, but it was it was somewhat concerning that it dropped almost four points. But the, the really, the, I think the real negative surprise, which wasn't a surprise embedded in it was the fact that the, uh, the employment component, the, the employment PMI itself fell below 50. Now it wouldn't go far below 50, but the fact that it's dropped below 50 at all and it wasn't just the services, the ISM services PMI. It was also below 50 for the manufacturing PMI as well. So both of those for the month of June said maybe the labor market's not strong. Again, because this is manufacturing as well as services. And you can see the clear, you know, the peak earlier this year and then maybe some slowing. And when you plot it out that way, it looks a lot like the household survey that we just talked about here. And the household survey Again, yes, that's very noisy and whatnot, but there is there is a correlation yeah. and re relationship between what goes on in the household survey and some of these some of this PMI data, including the employment data. Mm -hmm. Not just recently, but also in 2019, for example, there was mm -hmm. a definitely a slowdown there. And again, toward the end of 2019, uh, even after the Fed's rate cuts and all the repo stuff that went on there, which was consistent with the PMI data. So we're starting to say, you know, these are very different data points. You have the BLS's household survey, you have the ISM's uh, services and manufacturing PMIs, and both of their employment components said kind of the same thing that we're seeing repeated all over the world. We just talked about in the previous episode about Germany. Maybe the, the uh, recovery, the reopening, reflation, maybe the best days are behind us. And we're starting to see a lot more indications of, you know, not necessarily re-recession, nothing that bad, but perhaps just slowing down. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go next, because you have a sensational line in this paper, Jeff. This doesn't mean recession on the horizon. Much worse. Jeff, what can be much worse than recession? That we're stuck in the same, same economy as we've been in for, you know, what, 13, 14 years now. It's that, you know, we, this was supposed to be something as bad as the COVID and coronavirus and the pandemic and the recession related to it was, it was supposed to, I mean, the idea has crept in that, that the response to it has been so good and so huge and so big, it didn't just get us out of the coronavirus problems and the rut and the economic recession. It got us out of the post-crisis, the post-2008 rut. You know, the governments had done too much. It was going to be inflationary for the first time in decades. Yet here we keep seeing another, you know, another sort of another set, another set of data that says, yeah, there was a temporary burst of activity. 
that related to these massive government interventions, particularly in the United States with Uncle Sam writing checks to both businesses as well as consumers or former workers. But then what? But then what happens after the checks wear off and the interventions start to recede? And time and time again, we're getting the, these indications which say, well, we just we, we had that temporary intervention and now we're right back into the same shape as we were before COVID ever happened, which was not very good at all. It's, we have this double problem. We have a COVID problem of a big a deep recession of 2020. We really haven't gotten out of yet. And then not having not got out of that recession, we're the economy that we're, we're left into is the same one as, as preceded the, the, the recession last year, which is, you know, not a good economy at all. Here, reading from your report, Uncle Sam came in with huge checks, but then what? And I'm going to disagree with you a little bit about what you said that uh, people thought we were getting out of the 2008 rut. And maybe I'm cynical, Jeff. I want you to t analyze me as if I was on the couch right now. Am I being too cynical, Jeff? I don't believe that the people in power, the technocrats, the politicians, I don't think they know that we're in a rut in two, since 2008 because they wouldn't have stopped with the checks. They would have reacted as if this was a uh, Great Depression and we need FDR-style programs. I think it is my sense that they felt we were coming out of whatever it was, that downturn that took a little bit longer than normal, and then Donald Trump was elected, and he was very orange. And that's why we had these global trade wars. And then we had the, the COVID come. So I, I sense that people, the economists, the media, they believe that these were idiosyncratic accidents. We had an orange person that didn't like trade, and we had the corona. And, but that's all gone. We have elected President Biden now. The corona is behind us. So all we need to do is provide a little bit of stimulus, just like we have since the post-World War II period, the plucking model with Friedman, the Keynesian stimulus, that's what's going to do the magic. I don't think people in charge have any appreciation of the depths that we're in. Am I cynical or do, are you talking to people in charge that say, oh yeah, we know, we know we've been stuck for a long, long time? It's kind of both, but again, the idea is mean reversion, right? That's essentially what you're talking about. That yeah, we've been stuck for a very long, long time, but eventually we'll go back to where we're supposed to be. That the you know Friedman's plucking model will hit potential or whatever that is, and yeah, I think there's a lot of lot of serious people, unserious people, you know, important people, people with you know the best credentials who believe that that eventually, if we just clear up enough of the obstacles of these accidents, as you call them. The economy will on its own get back to where it's supposed to be. And I think when you look at the opposite of that, certainly the view from the bond market and the money markets, what they're saying is yes, except that reverting to the mean is not the same mean as the pre-crisis pre era. Reverting to the mean simply means we go back into the same lethargy, the same rut that we've been in for 14 years, and that these are not obstacles or accidents. They're simply the way the thing, way everything is that the economy is held back by something time and time again. We can put labels on what, what each of these things are, but it really it's the same thing, which is a broken monetary system. So 
yeah, it's both. It is reversion to the mean, but what is the actual? What is the, what does the economy mean? And I think it's different in the post-crisis era than it had been before 2000. I don't think there's any question that that's the case. That's what all the data says, not just in the United States, but all over the world. You know, the growth paradigm has been broken, and it broke in, right around October 2008, which kind of you know, <laughs> narrows the list of suspects down greatly. And they, nothing has been the same since then. And as we've talked about before, you know, a keen, a consumer, economists, particularly neo-Keynesian economists, don't believe in unit roots or you know, permanent shocks, so they continue to wait for this reversion to the pre-crisis mean when all of the evidence and the data and the markets, the market verdict is uniform, that the reversion to the mean is only ever going to be the post-crisis mean, which is something completely different altogether. And that's why we say inflation was impossible to begin with. Even as we recovered from the coronavirus recession, reversion to the mean wouldn't be pre-crisis growth and possible inflation that way, it would mean we're going to go back to where we were before we started the coronavirus. Which let, was... me, go, let me just footnote your statement there when you were saying inflation. By inflation, you mean permanent, pervasive increase in general prices due to a ubiquity of money, not a uh, supply and demand, logistical supply chain disruption price increase like we're seeing now. True, right? Because people are watching. They're saying, yeah, inflation, my lumber's uh, up and yeah, yeah. all, well, all manner of things are up. The CPIs in the U.S., which, you know, again, it's the U.S. It's just U.S. CPIs. You look around the rest of the world, it's not really that bad at all. In fact, it's, it's really it's, interesting that yeah. the U.S. CPIs and U.S. inflation data have gone so far ahead of Europe, for example, when for the last couple decades, inflation has been in lockstep in both of those places, which is indicative of idiosyncratic factors, which are not inflation. So to me, what's gone, what's happened over the last couple of months is a temporary price deviation, which is not the same thing as inflation at all. Yes, I know prices are up in certain places, but it's not monetary inflation. It's not the Fed printing money. It's not the money flowing through the real economy because the real economy is in real trouble. It's stuck in real trouble. And that's really what we're saying here is that once we get past all of this temporary stuff, the, the price deviations, the government checks, whatever else has been responsible, you know, vaccines and pandemic uh, sentiment rising as it should, legitimately rising, people being much more optimistic as they should be. Once we get past that temporary, that, that short-term, short-term trend, what is, what is the mean reversion? What does the economy really look like after all of those things are done? And I'm afraid people are going to be shocked to learn, when they shouldn't be, that the economy is, is maybe even a little worse off than the pre-COVID era and not in any way better off. I was thinking that we might want to do an episode on what you just mentioned, that the United States CPI, PCE numbers are high, whereas in other countries, we're not seeing that. Um, but we may not we may not we haven't when you wrote that report and we may not get to it so do your audience just rewind that again i think that's a very interesting point we have an outlier in the united states when it comes to inflation and so one should question the outlier versus the general background uh context that we see jeff in your article here you say that these numbers that we're seeing we shouldn't be seeing them so soon after a recession unless we're heading into a double dip or something. And that's why earlier you said you don't know if you should even 
call this a reflation. After a recession, you should see a strong bounce back. You shouldn't see this sort of weakness. And strong, you... strong, uniform, ubiquitous, unambiguous. I mean, recovery is something that you don't question because everybody mm. just know. I mean, you look at any data point and it says, yes, things are good. We should never see this kind of ambiguity. In, in, your, in your article, you talked about China. I suppose we don't have too much time. Uh, we don't want to go too long. But you talked about China and their PMIs. Not, not super, right? Basically, we can't. Same point, look, right? It's, yeah. yeah, we had a temporary burst reopening in, in China, which remember the Chinese went into recession before everyone else. They went into lockdowns and everything else before a couple months before everybody else. So the Chinese economy is a little bit ahead of the curve. And what we see from the PMI data, as well as the real economic data, retail sales, fixed asset investment, and industrial production, which we've talked about before, the Chinese economy is not doing well at all. And it may have peaked in November of last year. So we're, you know, six months or so into a, down, a slowing trend from what wasn't really much of a recovery to begin with. And that's consistent with what we're seeing in the U.S. data, which the U.S. data was more distorted by the U.S. fiscal interventions and things like that. But overall, it's the same sort of trend. After we get through those interventions and those temporary positives, what do we see? We see the same, same kind of potential slowdown felt developing that has already developed China, which just today we learned that the People's Bank of China has cut the RRR, which is, as we've talked about and I've written about for many, many years, that's not stimulus, that's a warning. So the Chinese are saying, yeah, things are getting serious over here in China. Uh, the government has been consistent in saying, this is it. This is as good as it gets, and it's not that good. And now here we have an RRR warning, which is the Chinese saying, yeah, we, we might see not just not just a slowing in the economy, it might be getting worse than we even think that it, what it would potentially could be right now. So there's all sorts of data all across the world and all these big economies that say U.S. inflation, complete outlier, bond yields falling, rolling over in Germany and all these other places that suggest forward-looking mean reversion, as we talked about, mean reversion doesn't mean something good. Mean reversion might mean something bad. And potentially it could be a lot, it could be worse than it was before the pre-COVID or before the COVID recession too. Last thing from me, Jeff, you just mentioned all over the world. And I, I was able to put together a uh, 40 some PMIs for June from around the world and compare them to May. And the results were that most, and I'm just talking about manufacturing right now, they most everyone reported that they were above 50 and they expected to see continued expansion. But for June, it was less broad, less enthusiastic than compared to May. And I'm going off of memory now, but the world average was like 57.5 compared to 56.3. No, I messed that up. So now it's 56.3, whereas in May, it was 57 and a half, basically one point lower for, for yeah, manufacturing. Which, I mean, right, I mean, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it really is. It's a big deal in that we're not supposed to see things start to slow down. Any, any of these kinds of indicate, we're not supposed to see things, the conditions slowing down this soon. You wouldn't expect that to, if this was a real recovery that finally got its, its legs underneath it with, with the economies reopening more completely across the world, especially Europe, we would, we would expect acceleration. We would expect it to be unambiguous. We would expect it to be ubiquitous and uniform and all these other adjectives we could come up with that suggest what a recovery actually is. 
And the fact that we can continue to see negative indications pile up, and then of course the bond market becoming more and more pessimistic. I mean, forget inflation, even you know, in the tips market, inflation expectations are falling again. The markets are saying something may not be right here. And then now we're getting data that comes in that says something may not be right here. Things that were supposed to be going right aren't and that we're reaching maybe the limits of what that, that temporary intervention could have achieved. And now what? What, what, is, what does everything look like once that, that temporary stuff wears off? While you were talking, I showed another graph with red dots, and that was services. And services is uh, mixed. Everyone is, not everyone, but mostly everyone is reporting continued expansion. So everyone's above 50. Uh, but the results were mixed. Uh, 10 countries reported that they were worse off in June than in May, while nine said that they were better off. So kind of a neutral in terms of uh, acceleration of good news, but still expansion. Jeff, that's it from me. I had a great time. I was very happy to be doing this again. We had a couple of weeks off. Any final thoughts for you? Any summary ideas, anything that I can ask David to draw that comes into your mind? What's the theme of the show? The theme of the show, I think, is what, we, what you just said. That oh, good. You know, re reopening and recovery and everything that's supposed to be going right, we should have everything all on the one side of the ledger, yet we keep uncovering all of these things that are on the wrong side of the ledger, or not, maybe not even on the wrong side of the ledger, but moving in the wrong direction it, in, it, it, when they really shouldn't be. And of course, that's completely consistent with what we're seeing in bond markets and money curves and all things, all these real real time indications which suggest that, you know, whatever whatever was going right earlier in the year, there's more that potentially that could go wrong or if not even actually going wrong at the current period, at the current time, then maybe we appreciate. And that, you know, when you put that into the inflation deflation debate, debate inflation, which never really got to be much of a chance to begin with judging by the bond market curves and things like that is now almost completely written off and where there's more of a chance of of you know of a disinflationary deflationary outcomes in the not just distant future like we've seen but maybe in the, in the uh, near and intermediate terms as well yeah take care emil good to be back finally again <clears throat> yeah i forgot how to do this do we know what we're doing do we need a practice cycle? <laughs>